It's that time of the year, you know, the Lollapalooza of retrospectives for the year 2022. So I have one. I'm going to talk about, of course, something on the energy economics front, the electric vehicle. You could argue it was one of the top obsessions of 2022. You know, claims of an inevitable, accelerating proliferation of zero emission EVs. It's going to take over the world. Policymakers were emboldened everywhere, including famously or infamously in California, where the governor uh, signed into law a legislation that will ban the sale of gasoline cars by 2035. So that brings in 2022 to a total of 12 states with such a ban. The European Union in October of 2022 said they were making a, quote, legislative headway on a ban on the sale of all new combustion engine cars and trucks to begin in 2035. In fact, in 2022, we'll see that was a year which a total of nearly 60 countries announced intentions or legislation similar to ban to ban the internal combustion engine. You could call maybe 2022 is a year of the ban. Not of opinions, but you know, the cars that everybody drives. So it was a foil for framing a retrospective on the state of the electric vehicle market. I'm choosing a Wall Street Journal column, some of you may have seen by Dan Neal. It was titled, Should You Buy an EV Now? I mean, there's probably no more enthusiastic an advocate of the EV revolution than the journal's Dan Neal. Dan Neal. I mean, first of all, he is the paper's automotive columnist. He's a deliciously good writer. Uh, I like his columns. I look forward to reading them every, every weekend. Uh, in 2022, pretty close to half of all of his weekly road tests was focused on an EV. Uh, in fact, when he tested uh, on December 1, the new all-electric Cadillac Lyric, he called it positively sublime. And, you know, Mr. O'Neill, and I use this column in all, as I say, with all due respect, but Mr. O'Neill, uh, Dan, said that it's not that it's his opinion. And I'll let me quote exactly what he wrote. He says, I'm merely a vessel conveying what automotive chief executives, executives are telling me. And thus, he says, I know electric cars are going to take over the world, end quote. So let's score the accuracy of Dan Neal's answers to questions that he says he gets from his readers. So he gets a lot of feedback as he, he's written. So he wrote a column at, uh, pretty close to year end called, Should You Buy an EV? And it's a, it's a good column. If you haven't read it, I recommend that you read it. He said he wrote it because uh, the, the group of people in his audience that he calls EV doubters uh, keep sending him questions and, and objections to his enthusiasm for the thesis that EVs are going to take over the world. Uh, I'll give you uh, so, so I'll, I'll give you a spoiler alert. And what I want to do is go through each of his Baker's dozen questions. So he assembled. The proverbial baker's dozen, 13 questions that he says he gets all the time, uh, the typical you know, questions he gets all the time about his enthusiasms for EVs. And then he responds to the questions. So I'll, I'll tell you what the questions are. I'll, I'll read his responses are brief. I'll read his response. I'm going to score it. So the plan here for my year-end uh, retrospective, because it's it's a perfect Rorschach of uh, how 
EV enthusiasts think about electric vehicles and what they're going to do for the for the world, for the planet, for the consumer, for America. And and look, you all know that uh, this administration has passed legislation and Congress collectively to spend billions and billions of dollars on electric vehicle subsidies, battery subsidies, electric vehicle charging stations. So this is this is not a debate over whether that's happening. It's it's obviously happening, uh, but there are questions. So in the Baker's Dozen questions and the Baker's Dozen answers, Mr. Neal actually makes 30 specific claims. So I'm going to score the claims quickly, briefly. Um, and then, uh, you know, spoiler alert, the overall the overall uh, score that uh, Daniel gets is he, he got 14 right out of 30. So not a passing grade, but, you know, close to close to half which is better than most people in the electric vehicle advocacy orbit. But first, before we get to the, the first question, I want to calibrate the state of play very briefly. Talked about this in earlier podcasts, but it, the year 2022, we'll see about 15 million EVs on the world's roads. And, and bear in mind, when you look at this data up on Dr. Google, be careful not to uh, you know dig down a layer. A lot of the uh, finger on the scale counting includes plug-in hybrids as electric vehicles. They are electrified because they have batteries, and you know how, how hybrids work. They have both a, an engine and a, and a electric propulsion system, battery plus motors. Uh, those are not those are not going to be allowed in the um, the future of banning internal combustion engines because they have an internal combustion engine. So I only count battery electric. That's the term, battery electric vehicles. So by EV, we really mean all battery, no engine. So 15 million of them in the world, roughly. That's about one percent of all the light-duty vehicles on the roads in the world. And in fact, about just under 1% of all the light-duty vehicles on roads in America. Well, that means obviously 99% of all vehicles are using internal combustion engines at the moment. But EV sales are rising rapidly from a very, very low base. There were essentially none a decade ago. Uh, about 5% of new car sales in uh, in America were uh, EVs. Uh, so that's, that's not nothing. And in fact, in California, uh, that... Transition is, to use the overused word, accelerating. Uh, about 18% of new car sales in California uh, leading the way were EVs uh, in 2022. So that, that trend is what is what the advocates are saying will lead quickly in a decade or two to something like 300 to 500 million EVs in the world. That would be quite remarkable if it happens. And as you, as you uh, might guess, I don't think that's going to happen. But let's just stipulate... It could. It's not. It's not totally impossible. I think it's rather unlikely. But if it did, uh, that would lead to roughly nine uh, percent, maybe ten percent reduction in global oil use, and even a smaller reduction in global carbon dioxide emissions, which is the animating purpose of car bans. So that's sort of the predicate, the calibration point to have in your head when we talk about electric vehicles taking over the world. Anyway, so here's question. The first question that. Uh, uh, that Dan uses in his uh, summary of why why do you, why should you buy an EV? And the first question is, why do I want an electric vehicle? So in this, his answer to this, he makes a half dozen assertions. So it's his longest answer. All of the rest of his, all the rest is uh, questions and answers are, are short. So I'm, I broke, I broke his answer up into the six bites. His first is, he says, remember flip phones, fax machines, and dial-up modems 
You want an electric vehicle because they're generationally improved products, quieter, quicker, more refined, more efficient, offering superior vehicle dynamics, less maintenance, and lower per mile operating costs. That's the first part of the answer. Well, he gets a, he gets a zero for that. And whether, you know, it's a rhetorical for, flourish or whether people you know, mean it seriously when they say that uh, the progress in energy technologies will emulate what we've seen in computer and communications technology. You know, the remember flip phones, fax machines, that line, remember landlines. This is this constantly repeated analogy uh, sounds good, but it's nonsensical. In the real world of energy physics, of moving bits versus moving atoms, that is moving data instead of moving people and cargo, it's a nonsensical analogy. It's not just mis misleading, it's in fact upside down. If battery chemistry, for example, could follow the arc of computing progress, we'd see in a car, we, we, we'd soon see a car that could be operated for its entire lifetime on a single charge of a battery the size of a peanut. Or again, the Moore's law curve, the computing progress curve would lead to a battery the size of a cereal box that could fly a jumbo jet across the Atlantic and back. Uh, it's just in comic books that might happen, but not in the real world. Energy tech does not scale like information tech. It won't in this universe that we live in. The physics don't work that way. In fact, the analogy is worse than wrong. It has it backwards. Building an electric vehicle instead of a conventional car requires somewhere between 400% to 7,000%, sorry, for somewhere between 400% and 7,000% more mined minerals produced to produce the same vehicle, the same class of vehicle. I mean, the technology around EVs will get better. Uh, we'll see batteries get better, but they'll get better incrementally, not anything like a computing rate. It's not going to be anything like the transition from telegraph to telephone or telephone to smartphones. These are different magisteria. This means that we shouldn't expect the performance, things like range and charge rate and acceleration uh, of today's expensive EVs to quickly become the norm for cheap ones. The expensive ones are better because they're expensive. So the $80,000 plus electric vehicle, it's blazingly quick off the line, as Dan Neal points out. And so are comparably priced conventional cars. Less expensive cars that pe most people buy have pretty tepid acceleration. And it's true for both EVs and conventional cars. The claim that EVs have lower maintenance, well, it's true. It's, it's somewhat, that's sort of the touchstone claim other than the claim that they have zero emissions, but the touchstone claim on why you want an EV for advocates is that it has lower maintenance. Uh, the truth, in fact, is debatable, and it's being thrashed out in the automotive press, literally, as we speak, and certainly this year, in road tests, uh, because there's lots of EVs available now, and the road tests and analysis of real-world experience are finding that EVs do have somewhat lower overall uh, maintenance operating costs, but it's only slightly lower. And that's partly because, not just because EVs are cars and they have maintenance issues, but it's because conventional cars have been, to use uh, Dan Neal's term, generationally improved. Uh, a new modern car is extraordinarily reliable. Very little has to be done to it. Yeah, you have to change the oil. A lot of people don't. <laughs> it's just You never replace spark, spark plugs. You, it's just disappeared as an, an issue. In fact, if you look at this year's uh, annual Consumer Reports survey, that's sort of the gold standard of looking at issues like reliability. They they rate uh, 11 different EV models where there's enough on-road 
real world data. So they they uh, they have a, enough data they've collected for consumers on 11 EV models. And they pointed out that seven, seven of them have uh, below average reliability, below average. Uh, a UK survey early, earlier this year at EV owners uh, found that about half of them, just over, uh, just under 50%, have a higher rate of uh, a recall or problems or dealer problems within the first several years of ownership compared to conventional cars. Uh, Consumer Reports chief uh, in that issue where they rated uh, the reliability of these 11 EVs, along with all the other cars they rate, he said the obvious, you know, consumers say to them, because they're they're focused on consumers, uh, not the government, they say reliability is one of the most important features for people when they buy a car. I mean, other other than price, of course, reliability is a price phenomenon too. The costs of low reliability do show up somewhere in the overall economics, of course, of cars. So the second claim in this, uh, of, the, of the half dozen he has in the first one, Daniel says, and I quote, for the millions of Americans, commuter, commuters able to charge at home overnight EVs will be cheaper and more convenient. For them, recharging could take seconds a week. That's the time it takes to plug in before you go to the house at night. For them, the per mile cost will be measured in pennies, not quarters. Okay. I give him uh, you know, a check mark. He, yeah, he's right. That's true. Uh, and if we're not talking about the take over the world thesis, but consumers who have a garage and can afford two or three cars, uh, this is true. And by the way, 90% of the EV owners in America uh, are multi-car households. So an EV can be a winner for a multi-car household that has a garage. Uh, overnight refill rates convenient, especially when the electricity you're using has been both explicitly and implicitly subsidized uh, by the local utility, by your state or by the federal government. So it's good for that class of uh, consumer. He's absolutely right. Then he goes on to say, and I quote, in one survey, four out of five new car buyers can charge at home, he says. I I give him a, a, a zero for this because I don't know what survey he's referring to. Uh, the fact that matters is this, and the data are easy to find. Only about one third of Americans have a personal garage. One third of American citizens have a personal garage. So in the takeover the world thesis, if most of the refueling is going to be done somewhere, it's not going to be in their personal garage. It's going to be at filling stations like they do now, everybody does now, or maybe at work. But it's just not true that the takeover of the world thesis for electric vehicles is going to be animated by convenience of charging at home. And then he goes on to say, you want, you want an EV because they're better for the environment. According to the US EPA, the average EV produces about two-thirds fewer emissions than an IC car, internal combustion car, in a, in a well-to-wheel analysis, which counts emissions from producing, delivering either fuel or electricity. On a life cycle basis, including the end of use, and EV's total emissions are less than half that of a comparable gas-powered vehicle, he says. I give him a zero for this. This is the, this is the nub of the whole issue, right? The, it, it's the motivation to ban internal combustion engines and promote and subsidize EVs is entirely anchored in this particular statement. And Dan Neal is not alone in making the assertion. He does properly cite EPA's own claims. EVs impact the environment, just like internal combustion engines. They just impact it differently. And they don't have a lower impact. In fact, they have a greater overall impact. But if by the environment, we mean just CO2 emissions, 
Then it's a little more complicated, I suppose you could say. The claims of dramatic reductions, though, dramatic reductions to CO2 emissions, are disputable. In fact, this is something I've written about a lot. Uh, we're, we're obviously going to have to talk about it here. But environmental impacts do include things like land use, water use, chemical usage, ecosystem disruption. And for EVs, compared to conventional vehicles, all those environmental impacts are far greater. A typical EV battery, its fuel system weighs 1,000 pounds. It entails the mining and processing, on average, of about 500,000 pounds of earth. Let me restate that, remind you. For each EV battery, somewhere on earth, we're going to have to dig up, on average, 500,000 pounds of the ground. Per battery, process those rocks, do something with them to get the minerals out, and then make a 1,000-pound, fabricate a 1,000-pound battery. As the International Energy Agency has pointed out and documented, as have many others, the fabrication, access of, of minerals and fabrication of an EV entails not only a thousand percent to several thousand percent increase in unusual or rare metals, cobalts and lithiums, obviously, but it also involves a 300% to 400% increase in the quantity of common materials that are mined, like copper and aluminum and nickel. And if we care about the environment, uh, a very recent study came out and pointed out that more than half of the locations in the world where new mining will be needed to meet the mineral demands for electric vehicles, more than half of those lands are indigenous lands that are ecologically fragile. There was a time when environmentalists worried about these things. Apparently not so much these days. The next thing that Dan Neal says, and is you know, the answer to the first qu question, which is, why do I why do I want an electric vehicle? Uh, the this again, this is a bundle of a half dozen assertions he has. You want one, he says, because the preponderance of the auto industry's genius is laser focused on making EVs progressively more awesome. Yeah, he's right. He gets a plus score there. There's fierce competition, and all of that always redounds to the consumer's benefit. And there's in, in America today, there's at least three dozen models of EVs you can buy compared to, you know, a decade ago, basically one, you know, the Tesla Model S when it came out. The jury is out, of course, on whether or not uh, and how well the rest of the market can uh, compete with Tesla and whether they can ever make a profit. I mean, keep in mind that General Motors CEO recently admitted that they're losing money in every EV they manufacture, that they think, they think they'll uh, finally make an EV profitably uh, two or three years from now. But as uh, the CEO did point out candidly on, on the back of two assumptions that the uh, subsidies will allow them to raise the price of the EV and that the cost of the batteries will get cheaper. The former, yeah, that wasn't the intention of the subsidies. Uh, the, the latter, we'll talk about in a second, but it isn't happening. But the point of... Uh, the point of the uh, competition here is that this is a Tesla competition. In America, two-thirds of all the EVs sold in 2022 were Teslas. So this is a Tesla story, and good for him. Elon Musk has done something that no one has done uh, in a century, which is build a car company that successfully competes with and takes market share from entrenched automakers. Uh, in fact, in Europe, uh, Tesla still sold over one-third of all the EVs. Uh, Volkswagen... Uh, is the number one in that market. They sold about half of the EVs there. So, and then the sixth and, uh, uh, and last part of his answer to his first question, which again was, why do I want an electric vehicle? The, the last point he made is, 
and I'm quoting, while combustion technology is about as good as it'll ever get. If you say it's good enough, I have a question for you. What are you smoking? End quote. Well, Daniel gets uh, zero for this assertion. I mean, it's just, it's just not true. Uh, of course, the technology for electric vehicles is getting better. And so is the technology for internal combustion engines. But here's the irony. Uh, there's greater near-term improvement possibilities in the underlying nature of combustion technology than there is for improvement in the underlying nature of electric motors or batteries. The technical and automotive literature is just full of examples of radical improvements. Radical, not just modest, not incremental, but radical improvements to combustion engine technology. In fact, there's there are proven, and again, not theoretical, but proven and uh, engines that have been built are commercially viable where efficiency improvements are comparable, can get can get the overall package, the car, uh, comparable to and even better than the overall energy efficiency of uh, electric motor plus battery. As a practical matter, you know, enhanced combustion efficiency offers something uh, kind of unique, clear transparency on how much uh, fuel you're saving. I mean, there's no guessing uh, where the fuel comes from because you're buying it. And if you have a vehicle that gets 50% uh, better if efficiency, you'll cut your fuel use by 50%. You don't know that with electric vehicles, as we'll talk about in a minute. In fact, the uh, combustion technologies that exist today that are practical, that could be purchased by practical means that can be manufactured, they are roughly twice as good as the average combustion engine on the road. There is no battery and there is no electric motor that's viable that exists that will be twice as good as those on the road today. So now second question that Dan Neal poses to his audience, he said he gets uh, a lot uh, of uh, correspondence on is what's wrong with internal combustion? And his answer, again, he's got a few points he makes in his answer. The first point he makes is, quote, besides tailpipe emissions, costlier service and maintenance and our geopolitical adversaries manipulation of the price of oil. Okay, so there's some truth to that, but he gets he gets no credit for this. It's a zero uh, because electric vehicles do have tailpipes; they're just elsewhere. You know, we we have massive oil burning machines and and chemical chemical refineries, giant giant processing facilities operated by coal and natural gas. All of that needed to access and refine the minerals to build EVs in quantities, and the quantities of materials needed again more than a thousand percent higher. Than building conventional cars. So those are tailpipes. They're real and they're not going to go away. The other de facto tailpipe, of course, involves producing the electricity for batteries. Everybody's talked about that. But for the takeover of the world thesis, it's relevant that for at least the next decade or two, over half of all the world's electricity will still come from burning hydrocarbons. In fact, coal use is another 2022 fact. Coal use soared uh, this past year. It didn't shrink. And in China, where half the world's electric vehicles reside, uh, the grid is two-thirds coal-fired. And when it comes to making claims about geopolitical manipulation of oil, this is a fact that's worth keeping in mind that the International Energy Agency pointed out. There, there are far fewer countries that have control over the major, major share of energy minerals than there are countries that have control over oil supplies. And China is the utterly dominant player, in fact, as I've said in an earlier podcasts, China has a market share in energy minerals to make electric vehicles uh, that is more than double OPEC's market share in oil. 
it'd be kind of naive to suppose that there will be no adversarial manipulations in energy minerals markets. There'll only be adversarial manipulations in oil markets. I mean, it's not, not only naive, that's why it gets a zero score. It's wrong. Then uh, Daniel goes on to say that, again, remember, this is an answering the question, what's wrong with internal combustion? He says, quote, three words, continuously variable transmission. The dreaded CVT is emblematic of the throttling necessary to get the next generation of internal combustion cars past global market submission standards. Compared to EVs very, with very few moving parts, the complexity of modern gas-powered vehicles terrifies me. 10-speed transmissions, variable geometry, turbochargers, high-pressure injectors, et cetera. Okay. I give him a zero score for this, not because it's not true that internal combustion engines have complexity. It's because it's a myth to say that EVs are simpler. They're just differently complicated. They're not simpler. The, <laughs> the internal combustion engine's thermomechanical system has a very, very simple fuel system, a tank holding a liquid with a one moving part pump. And then a complex propulsion system, you know, the engine with hundreds of components and, a, you know, an automatic transmission with, you know, hundreds of more components. So hundreds of components. But the electric vehicle is an electrochemical system. It sort of flips the complexity. It has a very simple motor made with a few parts, the electric motor. Usually in the expensive cars, it has several motors. But its fuel system, the battery, is not a tank that's a simple one part fuel tank. It is made from hundreds of parts, sometimes thousands of parts. It has a cooling system and sensors and control electronics and structural parts. So, and both, this is not a simple machine. It's just differently complicated. Both electric vehicles and internal combustion engines wear out. Everything in the universe wears out, requires maintenance. The, the main form of wear and tear occurs at the molecular level in both kinds of vehicles, by the way, it's what goes on. It's sort of invisible wear outs, why things, why things break. That's true in batteries, it's true in engines, it's true in motors. But anyway, the key point is they're not simpler. They're just differently complicated. And then Daniel goes also to say in answering the, uh, the question, what's wrong with an internal combustion engine? He says, uh, the high volt, he doesn't like um, hybrid systems. So he says, high voltage hybrid systems relying on dozens of sensors and fistfuls of CPUs. 10 years from now, what condition will those smoke-making spaceships be in? Who will fix them? Who will code them? I give him zero for this too, because he's, you know, he's obviously trying to imply that the internal combustion engine-based hybrid is somehow inherently more complicated with its fistful of CPUs and sensors. So the high-power electronics and battery systems that are needed in electric vehicles also depend on dozens of sensors and fistfuls of CPUs. For those who, uh, what I would call, that have FOMO, and by that I mean fear of microprocessor overload, overload, <laughs> too many microprocessors, EVs use lots of microprocessors. In fact, collectively, the power and electronics, the electronics uh, part of, uh, of an electric vehicle, the, the parts and dollar count is about 200% higher than in conventional vehicles and much higher than in hybrids. So it's kind of ironic that... Uh, the principal uh, quality control issue for pure EVs is in precisely the area that uh, Daniel doesn't like hybrids about, which is in the software. That's been the principal complaint for uh, for, for people who bought EVs uh, in the first few years they've owned them. Okay, question three. 
that he said Daniel says he gets from his uh, readers. I do want an EV, but shouldn't I wait? Is the question. And Dan answers. I estimate that two out of three reader inquiries reflect this eager but skeptical mindset from people postponing purchase of an EV for reasons of cost, practicality, or lack of desirable models. The biggest barrier to widespread adoption is not charging, but affordability. Legacy automakers have so far priced EVs like premium upgrades to existing products. Example, the Volvo XC40 recharges $53,000, about $66,000 more than a fully loaded conventional Volvo. The rationale is that the bump in price reflects the high cost of batteries and a premium content, end quote. Bingo, right? That's the principal barrier. It's affordability, gets that right, gets a positive score. But for the thesis that EVs will take over the world, we got to keep in line the iron law of economics, that widespread adoption of any product or service occurs at lower price points. In the automotive world, over 90% of all new cars sold globally are not in the luxury or high-end price category where we find nearly all EVs outside of China. For example, there are no EVs in the lowest price category for cars. The lowest price category, cars, brand new cars that you can buy for, for $16,000 to $20,000. There's 10 models. You can look it up. The least expensive Tesla is over $40,000. And the fiercest competition in the EV world is for cars that cost over $60,000. Thus, the uh, EV transition, this transition is not about take over the world. It's about take over the wealthy world. It's, it's competition for the highly profitable luxury end of the car market. It is a little bit rich that Daniel uh, elastically uses the word reasonable to extol the price of the new uh, Cadillac all-electric luxury car. He says that its $63,000 price tag is, quote, conspicuously reasonable for such an automobile. Huh. He's right. Uh, for wealthy buyers, it's much cheaper than the $90,000 car it competes with. But uh, again, it's a little bit more expensive to be facetious uh, than the average car that most people buy. Then he also says uh, in the uh, second part of the answer to the question, the question again, I do want I do want an EV, but shouldn't I wait? And in answering that, he says, quote, the dynamic stands to swing the other way that is the dynamic of cost. Uh, as the average cost of building EVs falls below that of comparable internal combustion cars due to the plummeting cost of batteries, some analysts have pegged this industry inflection point as soon as 2014. I actually expect a bit of a price war in mid-decade as EVs from China and South Korea recalibrate the US market's affordability. So I give Dan zero for this because the core claim is about plummeting costs of batteries. That's the core claim. He expects EVs are going to get cheaper because of price competition and battery costs will collapse. Well, lithium batteries, their cost has collapsed since inception. Uh, but the cost of these half-ton batteries has not been plummeting in recent years. Instead, they've been decreasing only slowly and their costs are now rising. This has been widely reported. And as I predicted a year ago, uh, in fact, I predicted two, two or three years ago, the increase in cost of electric car batteries comes from the very simple fact that the price of the materials that need to be purchased to build the battery constitutes 70% of the cost to fabricate the battery. 
So if mineral prices are rising, the cost of the battery rises. And for the takeover of the world thesis, any claim that batteries are gonna get cheaper inevitably in the future is essentially a claim that the global mining industry is going to oversupply or at least adequately supply the world with the minerals needed to build that many batteries. I could say it again, we're talking about a 400% to 7,000% increase in mineral supply to meet these ambitions for the so-called energy transition. And the world's mining industry is not now made any announcements of a capacities remotely capable of providing that many minerals in the next decade or two. In fact, the global mining industry is under-investing at that scale by a factor of about 10. Okay, uh, next question that Dan Neal asks are, are the batteries ready? Any answers thusly, and I quote, barely, he says, the best commercial batteries today store less than 300 watt hours per kilogram, a pitiful fraction of gasoline's energy density. These guys, remember I'm quoting Dan Neal here. These guys, these little guys cost a fortune, weigh a ton, bingo. And they use a lot of unsustainable materials, such as cobalt. Bingo. Energy density, the kilowatt hours per kilogram, not how fast you can go on a charge, but how far, remains the biggest challenge, he writes. You can toot around in an unburdened Ford F-150 Lightning for 200 miles between charges. Easy. But hook a boat and trailer to it, and the pickup's range falls off the proverbial cliff. In frigid temperatures, an EV's estimated range might fall on the order of 30 to 40%. When plugged in overnight, EV batteries are kept warm, but they do not like a cold soak. End quote. Bingo, 100%. He scores, he scores a win on this one. Speaks the truth. Uh, the greatest challenge competing with a tank of petroleum, uh, as I've said in other podcasts on this matter, is the energy density of petroleum. It's uh, roughly speaking 5,000% more energy per pound of petroleum in the inherent uh, physical chemistry compared to the inherent physical chemistry of lithiated chemicals. There are no batteries that exist or are likely to be available for a long time that can come to close to even 10% of the energy density of oil. And of course, your internal combustion engine largely doesn't care about all the features that make a battery-powered vehicle lose range. The EV advocates like to point out that the electric drivetrain has an inherent advantage. It's very efficient. Uh, that's true. It is very efficient, but it's not efficient enough to make up for the enormous disadvantage of batteries. Batteries are just, frankly, as impressive as lithium batteries are. When you're comparing it to storing energy in the form of oil, batteries are just a lousy, a lousy option at a fundamental physical chemistry level. But they're plenty good enough to make lots of EVs. That's not what the dispute is. The dispute is the takeover of the world thesis. So question five. Uh, Daniel asks, what if I want a Tesla? That's interesting. <laughs> he gets that question a lot, apparently. And his answer, I quote, pull the trigger. The cars are awesome. Thanks to the company's ever-growing network of fast charging stations, you can go where you like and live where you like. It certainly helps that long-range Teslas can go more than 300 miles between charges and recuperate 162 miles in 15 minutes. In a word, practical. End quote. Bingo. He gets, a, he gets yeah, he gets full credit for that one. Uh, and keep in mind, Teslas are expensive. Uh, they're practical for wealthy buyers. Uh, never mind, you know, subsidies don't don't explain people buying Teslas. They they're good cars. They have to be good cars. Rich people aren't stupid. You don't you don't buy a ninety thousand dollar car because of a ten thousand dollar subsidy. It has to be a good car. 
And only recently have some EV makers managed to catch up with Tesla's engineering lead. Uh, and as I said earlier, Tesla <laughs> in the United States, Tesla was two thirds of all EV sales in America. And uh, you know they're still number three in Europe. They, they uh, only recently just slightly edged out by BMW and Mercedes. In fact, if you go by model, uh, the Tesla Model Y was the number one electric model sold in Europe. And even in China, Tesla's one of the three dominant uh, brands. It's not number one. It's you know it's a distant uh, third to uh, the dominant seller there, which is BYD, the company that Warren Buffett famously uh, invested in. But, uh, you know, it's, it, the answer he gives is great. You want, if you want to test, buy a Tesla, it's a great car. Next question, Daniel asks, what if I don't want a Tesla? Okay. <laughs> I like, I kind of like where you go. I mean, you really, you got to love this guy. You really do. Anyway, his answer, I quote, it says, I get that. After all, Tesla makes only four body styles, but you're giving up the supercharger safety net. And, and quote, uh, full score for this. Uh, it's an obvious first, not just that if you know people are going to buy non-Teslas because the other ones are they're good and there's more more options, right? There's dozens of options now, but he's pointing out something that's important for any 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 buyer of an EV that's thinking of using their EV for road trips, or not just you know tooling around town occasionally, then access to a network of fast charging stations uh, is going to be critical. And keep in mind the word fast here is relative. We're talking about uh, taking 30 minutes to fill up versus five minutes for a gasoline fill up. But Tesla is unequivocally still the market leader when it comes to that. They've got something like 7,000 fast chargers. They're what they call superchargers installed at something like 1,500 locations in the country. So uh, it's going to take a little time for everybody to catch up to that. They're going to, uh, you know, courtesy of taxpayer money largely. And, and again, you give Elon Musk credit for this. He did it with very relatively on a relative basis with relatively far fewer subsidies than the other automakers are now going to enjoy. Okay, number seven in his, uh, his Baker's Dozen, Dan Neal asks, do the batteries pose a fire hazard? Okay, that's an important, important one. And you, you, you will doubtless, if you follow this issue, read a lot about or seen videos of epic uh, blazes of, of Teslas on fire. So Dan's answer to this, and I quote, it's, and remember, the, do the batteries pose a fire hazard? And the answer, it's not zero, but the possibility of your EV's battery catching fire as a result of a collision is remote, comparable to the risk in an IC-powered car. The other spooky possibility is a cascading thermal event, as battery engineers call it, in use or while recharging. The Chevy Bolt case is a recent example. Comparisons aren't perfect. The battery fires have been typically traced to a manufacturing defect for which a recall or even do not drive order is sent out en masse. Fires involving internal combustion powered vehicles are stochastic and situational, end quote. Full points. Daniels nails it. It's but a couple of caveats. When lithium fires do happen, they're devilishly hard to extinguish. Firefighters are understandably nervous. You know, you've, you've seen the videos. Uh, and battery fires, though, uh, you know, to put a not too fine a point on it, are also uh, stochastic and situational. I mean, they occur because of uh, battery manufacturing flaws, which are very difficult for a consumer or a technician to notice, and and in many respects far harder to notice than flaws with an internal combustion powered vehicle. But he's right; the, the battery fires, uh, these are not going to be any uh, likely any more common than fires with conventional cars. His uh, question eight, will I ever have to replace the battery? 
important question, given how expensive the battery is, right? So his answer, highly unlikely. In California, EV and hybrid batteries must be warranted for 10 years or 150,000 miles. The federal standard is eight years and 100,000 miles. In the field, the first generation of EV batteries has lived longer and worked harder than most were expecting. Tesla and others are aiming for the million mile battery, end quote. Uh, again, bingo, gets, he gets a positive score on that. It's true. A well-built automotive battery will last the life of a vehicle. Uh, but the battery is the most expensive single part of the vehicle, and it costs at least twice as much as the single most expensive part of a conventional car, the engine. So consumers will find insurance costs are higher. In fact, they are higher because the single part's more expensive to replace. But that's it. it uh, absent a manufacturing defect or an accident, it'll last the life of the vehicle. Question nine from Dan Neal. Are EVs better for the environment? This is, remember, uh, the uh, touchstone for the whole reason for banning conventional cars. And his answer, and this is a variant on the answer he gave, it's part of his first question and answer. His answer, I quote, in terms of one's personal footprint, don't kid yourself. The best kind of car is no car. Uh, cute, Dan. Anyway, that said, EV lifetime emissions pencil out to be about half of their average counterpart with an engine, according to US EP analysis. While EVs are more carbon intensive to make due to mining and battery manufacture, they quickly recoup the difference in use where they are two thirds cleaner well to wheel, end quote. I could give him partial credit for saying that EVs are more carbon intensive to make. Uh, he gets it right, due to the mining and battery manufacturer. But I give him zero, uh, a, a, a no-go uh, answer here because he then said, they quickly recoup the difference in use. Um, so again, let's set aside the framing, are they better for the environment? Because as I said, the astonishing quantity of minerals required to, to be mined and processed to make EVs, uh, by definition, will have a big environmental impact. It can't be ignored. But the issue here, the whole motivating animus against the internal combustion engines, the whole motivating excitement about car bans is about CO2 emissions. And the nub of the matter here is that the assertion that Dan Neal makes, and he's not alone in making this assertion, everybody hears it, is that EVs emit far less carbon dioxide. And here he correctly acknowledges you have to pay for the carbon dioxide debt of making the battery itself. So whether or not you dramatically reduce CO2 emissions or ever reduce CO2 emissions is now entirely anchored in knowing a lot about two things. When you charge the vehicle and where, that is the emissions from the power plant, and how you make the battery. Now, the when you charge the vehicle is a really important one. And an awful lot of uh, silly uh, analyses have been done on this. You can't know what fuel you're using in your car unless you know when and where you're charging that car. You can't use averages. The time of day and the geographic location will determine whether or not the energy that is driving your vehicle is 100% coal, which would be true most of the time in most of China, uh, in a lot of Europe, by the way, in England, or mostly wind and solar, which could be true, especially wind at night in the Midwest of the United States or West Texas. You don't know uh, what's really being used unless you look at behavioral characteristics of when people tend to and will plan to refuel their vehicle. Analyses that take that into account do find that EVs in many states will cut emissions by 20 to 30 to 50%. And other states will increase EV uh, CO2 emissions by 10, 20, 30, 
40%. So it's actually complicated. It's not obvious. And we'll have to use the grid we've got for the next decade to two decades, because even if you subsidize the heck out of building more wind and solar, we're still going to be burning lots of hydrocarbons for quite a long time. So it's just a fact. As for the battery side of it, I refer often to the Volkswagen study that they've put at their website. Volvo has a similar study at their website. There are now dozens of serious analyses in the technical literature looking at the total CO2 burden that is all the fuels consumed to mine minerals, to process and transport them, to make batteries. The total CO2 burden, say measured in tons of CO2 uh, needed to make the battery. And then of course you don't emit CO2 using the battery, except for the power plant, but how long it takes to quote, recoup the CO2 burden from the battery is in deep dispute. If we use the Volkswagen study, what Volkswagen put at their website is that on average in Europe, it will be 60,000 miles of driving before your EV has led to less CO2 being emitted than just driving a conventional vehicle. And that, of course, is based on the assumption, a specific assumption, and it is assumption, about the quantity of CO2 associated with making that particular battery. The number they use is a low number. It's a low number, not unreasonably, by the way, because you could, you could source all your materials from very efficient uh, sources of mining and refining. It's, also, it's possible. It's just not everybody will be able to do that. But it's also a low number because the battery used in that vehicle is physically small and, and therefore uses fewer materials. Uh, if you pick a higher end of a range for a bigger battery and for minerals sourced other places, you find that the net CO2 reduction could be zero. This is a problem. We should actually get the answer to these questions, but it's not true uh, as Daniel asserts. Uh, and it's not true as EPA asserts and many others assert that EVs will radically reduce CO2 emissions. The correct answer is we don't know how much they'll reduce CO2 emissions, but we do know it won't be zero at the tailpipe because the tailpipe for CO2 emissions is significant and it's elsewhere. So on to question number 10, we're nearing the, uh, the end of the uh, wrap up and these are easy ones. Uh, Dan asks is number 10, do EVs help climate change? He has to come back to that. So essentially three of his center points are all about CO2. And his answer is, again, listen to his answer. It's pretty good. Quote, they are only as clean as the power sources that charge them. That's to our collective advantage. At the national level, the U.S. has been steadily decarbonizing its electrical generation over some decades. Currently, about 25% of U.S. production comes from renewable carbon neutral sources, solar, wind, water, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, at the current pace, renewables will provide 38% of the nation's energy by 2030, end quote. Bingo, full credit. But let's do some uh, calibration around perspectives. The decarbonization of the U.S. grid that Dan Neal refers to, three-fourths of that came from the shale revolution, bringing cheap gas into the market and displacing coal on a price basis. And those two fuels still account for 70% of U.S. electricity supply. And the two of them will provide about half a decade from now, even if we uh, subsidize the heck out of the grid. And certainly hydro dams and burning wood, by the way, <laughs> those, are, those are also in the renewables category. The thing that everybody's talking about is solar and wind. 
So solar wind today, about 12% of Americans' electricity. Those are the preferred renewables. It's certainly possible with subsidies and mandates that that share will double by 2030. But if we get to that doubling and we get to what uh, Dan Neal correctly quotes, the EIA forecasting nearly 40% of energy from renewables, that begs the question, where do the other 60% come from? Uh, a lot of it, the vast majority of the other 60% will be burning hydrocarbons. Hence the importance of answering the question about exactly when and where you would charge a car in the next decade or two. Because we build power plants not for years, but for decades. In, in also answering this question, do EVs help climate change? Dan Neal says, and I quote, on a nationwide basis, the US doesn't have a generation problem, but a distribution problem due to aging grid infrastructure. The Energy Department estimates the US squandered 14 terawatts of clean power in 2021, left unused in interconnection queues, end quote. Uh, gets, no, gets nothing for this, bupkis, zero, no. The aging grid claim is a trope. It's not true. Utility spending on upgrading the local distribution grids, it's up 60% in the past two decades and the number of customers hasn't grown more than 20%. That's the local grid. The overall utility spending on the delivery of uh, electricity, you know, long haul grids, local grids, it's up 70% in the past decade alone. And a lot of that, by the way, has been to accommodate the remote wind installations. It's also modernization. The US has been spending a lot of money, a lot of ratepayers' money on upgrading the grid. But he's wrong. The US doesn't will have a generation problem, that is a supply problem, if a significant share of cars shift from oil to the grid. Just roughly speaking, electrifying all of America's cars would require uh, the grid to expand by about 50%. You need about 50% bigger grid to shift the energy from cars to the grid. That's not being planned. None of the current plans uh, have in play anything resembling a 50% expansion of the US grid capacity. As for his assertion that this uh, lack of a grid interconnect has quote, squandered 14 terawatts of clean power. Uh, and let's, I think he meant terawatt hours, by the way. That's uh, just a typo. We all have typos. I hate typos. We get typos. And the reason I know that is that uh, there isn't 14 terawatts of clean power. 14 terawatts of clean capacity is 70 times more than the total installed capacity of wind and solar in a country right now. I mean, not, not seven times, but 70 times more. What he meant was terawatt hours. And uh, the 14 terawatt hours of squandered clean power, that's clean power you couldn't get the market because we didn't have enough transmission. For context, sounds like a big number. It's 0.4% of US electricity consumption. So the squandering, eh, it's no, not such a big deal. I certainly wouldn't spend a lot of money on transmission uh, to save a 0.4% of uh, squandered terawatt hours. And then Dan also points out in this, uh, this is an important one, right? Uh, the, the epicenter, the claim, do EVs help fight climate change? He, he says, and I quote, in California, where renewables are a big part of generating capacity, the average EV produces about 2,261 pounds of emissions every year. In West Virginia, where utilities rely heavily on coal, the same EV produces 9,000 pounds. Not great, but still less than the average gas-powered car at 11,000 pounds of CO2, by the way, end quote. The specific numbers are correct, but I give them zero uh, for the answer because it's profoundly misleading. Right, what he's what he's referring to here is using the average amount of CO two emissions to charge the EV 
over the year, assuming that the EV uses average electricity, which it doesn't. But let's just take that for starters. But he's only counting the, elect the emissions associated with the electric generation in California and the electric generation in West Virginia. He's again ignoring, even though he was aware of it in an earlier answer, he's ignoring the CO2 emissions associated with making the battery. You as the battery buyer and owner are responsible for those emissions. If we include those and we prorate the emissions over a 10-year life, that is, the battery has emitted CO2 before it arrives in your driveway when you buy the new car, the amount of CO2 that battery has emitted is somewhere between 25,000 and 50,000 pounds before the first mile you drive it, before the first kilowatt hour goes into it to drive anywhere. If you prorate those emissions over the 10-year life of the vehicle, you could say your battery is emitting 2,500 to 5,000 pounds per year of CO2. Add that to the emissions that Daniel refers to for the power plants to charge the battery, and the picture looks kind of different. The average EV in California over the year doesn't emit 2,200 pounds of CO2, emits somewhere between 5,000 and 7,000 pounds of CO2. Again, that's compared to the gas-powered cars, 11,000. So it's, it's it's a reduction, but you know, 11,000 to 7,000 ain't zero. Uh, it's, it's significant, you know, it's 40% and change. But it, in West Virginia, or there's lots of other states like West Virginia, the actual annual emissions uh, are higher because if you prorate, again, the 2,000 to 5,000 pounds, per year from the batteries manufacturing to the 9,000 pounds of CO2 emitted from charging the battery per year in West Virginia, you get a number that's bigger than the internal combustion engine's 11,000 pounds of CO2 per year. And I will point out again, if you want to reduce the emissions from the internal combustion engine, buy a car that's 50% more efficient than average. The average that Daniel's quoting, of course, is a 24 mile per gallon statistical average of cars in on the road in the country. You go buy a car that gets 32 miles per gallon, you can get a bigger reduction of CO2 emissions, far bigger than you got from buying the more expensive EV. The other uh, and last part of his answer to this question, do EVs help fight climate change? This is question 10. He, he uh, says, and I quote, for many, the most tantalizing EV talking point is home solar recharging, typically using a bank of batteries to store the sun's energy. This is as close to zero per mile emissions as you can get. Tesla has a home energy ecosystem built around photovoltaic roof tiles and its power wall storage unit. Other automakers are following, end quote. I give him a zero on this, not because the statement isn't true that you can do this. It's the claim that it's as close to zero emissions as you can get. It's a long way from zero emissions. It's still elsewhere emissions. And the home battery technology is the same technology as the car battery technology. So that 2,500 pounds per year of pro-rat emissions that you're responsible for every year you drive your battery-powered car, just those emissions, not from charging the battery, but from making the battery, those pounds, I double or triple those because I have to buy batteries for my house to charge up, to charge my car. So that means they're not zero. They're actually worse than a conventional car in this case. You've actually increased global CO2 emissions by buying a Tesla wall and a Tesla and a solar array for your roof. Because keep in mind that solar array you bought on your roof, 80% of the solar modules are fabricated in China. 
On a grid that's two-thirds powered by coal, in fact, the solar modules are preferentially located in grids that are closer to 100% coal-fired because it takes something on the order of a thousand times more energy to produce a pound of silicon than a pound of steel. So these energy-intensive coal-fired processes take place in China. They aren't taking place in America. They're emitting CO2 to the planet's atmosphere. We should be counting this stuff. Dan gets zero for this. He gets zero because it, the word disingenuous is not the word I, you know, I use. It's because it's, it's a form of cognitive dissonance. He knows that these batteries require mining. He does know they involve CO2 emissions. He's just ignoring it in this observation. That's called cognitive dissonance. There is, uh, to use the trite phrase, uh, no free lunch when it comes to CO2 emissions. Sorry. Question 11 from Dan. What about plug-in hybrids? And he writes, I'm not a fan except in Ferraris designed to operate for short distances on EV mode and then as necessary, engage the gas engine. Plug-in hybrids were intended to be transitional products, literally bridging the distance between gas and electric energy, end quote. I give him zero on this too. Not because, uh, you know, he, he doesn't like plug-in hybrids, but they weren't designed as transitional products. They were designed as an option for consumers who seek fuel efficiency. Uh, in all electric, uh, you know, plug-in hybrids can go in all electric mode and sh short uh, distances in city driving, and they profoundly improve the uh, functional uh, combustion efficiency of an internal combustion engine. Toyota might be the only company in the automotive world pointing out the truth, by the way, that one can manufacture about 10 high-efficiency plug-in hybrids for every single electric vehicle you need, uh, you want to make, based on the need for materials. So if you're pushing the takeover the world thesis, the plug-in hybrid, in fact, is a better path to global gains in efficiency and therefore global reductions in emissions from burning hydrocarbons. And also it says, when, it, when he answers the question, what about plug-in hybrids, he answers, in practice, plug-in hybrids often serve power and performance, not efficiency. Plug-in hybrids can't go 10 miles on electrons alone. I, I gave him full points for this. I mean, some plug-in hybrids can go more than 10 miles, but his point his point is right. It's true that most plug-in hybrids, the, the uh, automakers are bragging about uh, their performance, that when you add uh, the, the combination of uh, an internal combustion engine and electric motors working in tandem, you get, you get uh, what Daniel calls, I quote him, falling elevator class acceleration. <laughs> Good, that's a great analogy. Uh, you get that from electric motors, which he writes about all the time. Uh, he likes acceleration. In fact, uh, he he wrote um, uh, lovingly, as well he should, about the sort of grid-inducing ludicrous mode. That's what, you know, for those of you who are not Tesla cognoscenti, that's uh, an option you have on some Teslas, a ludicrous mode to get the uh, sort of lip-peeling acceleration. You know, acceleration is what automakers sell of all kinds, whether you're making an electric vehicle, plug-in hybrid, or gasoline-powered car. There's sort of two markets, if you like, simplistically. The market for pure economic efficiency, people need cars because they need cars. And then once people are wealthy enough, they buy cars for other emotional and behavioral reasons. So that's just the nature of the business. Okay, he also says, in the answer to the question, what about plug-in hybrids? 
I quote, the other issue is psychological. Like I just said, right? No, sorry. The other issue is psychological. Studies show that the plug-in hybrid users don't plug them in very often, or at least at all. This negates the public good for which plug-in tax credits were awarded. Meanwhile, plug-ins, uh, uh, hybrids have the same maintenance needs as an internal combustion car, end quote. He gets full score for that. Yeah, he's right. Surveys show that. They show that, that, uh, that people don't plug them in that often. They often just forget to plug them in. So yes, surveys do show that. Of course, this is the real point. If the economic advantages in electric motor obvious, consumers are generally smart enough to, to capture those savings if they want them. The real issue here is the idea that somehow there's psychology involved in this. Of course there is. Cars uh, and car sales, the sales of all products involve human behavior, psychological realities. If I hear Here's a psychological reality behavior mode. Uh, surveys also show that EV owners, that is not plug-in owners, the plug-in surveys show they don't always plug them in, they forget. But let's just go to the EV owners. Surveys show that the EV owners drive about half as many miles per year as the average uh, use of a car, which means the incentives aren't doing what you think. In fact, the incentives at best are doing half as much as you think because the average EV owner drives half as many miles in the EV as they would otherwise drive in a conventional car. So if we're talking by, about invoking the public good on a good use of these tax credits, which is the entire motivation, right? The political motivation for the credits, then maybe we gotta think about uh, how EV owners on average, based on surveys, are using their cars. In fact, we also know that two thirds of EVs in America's are not only Teslas, but as surveys show, including uh, Tesla's own market analysis, the average, uh, and again, remember, two-thirds of EVs in America are Teslas. And I quote, the average Tesla owner is, quote, this is not Dan Neal, it's a survey, a 54-year-old white man making over $140,000 with no children, end quote. Okay, just saying with respect to the public good metric for all these credits. All right, question 12 that Dan answers, so is now a good time to buy an EV? Question mark. Okay, here's his answer. I quote, not really, no. <laughs> good for Dan. I mean, what? A, just think about this. After all this enthusiasm, here's his, let me read his answer. Not really, no. Consumer demand nationally and globally has run well ahead of automakers' plans, leaving them scrambling to add capacity. Example, Ford more than doubled production targets for the F-150 and Lightning pickups. Uh, Dearborn's uh, vehicle center since the facility came online. The company closed out reservations last year after the list hit 200,000. Shortfall of inventory is multi-causal, chips, COVID, shipping, and logistics. These have co coincided with the macroeconomics of EV disruption, what marketers call the gooseneck of demand. The consequence has been rising prices, including tacked on market adjustments from sharp-elbowed dealers. My advice, don't pay them, end quote. Okay, uh, full score, uh, I guess full credit here, Dan and I are on the same page. Uh, I'd say let the wealthy buy EVs and I'd also say without credits paid for by everyone else, in particular the middle class. And as for the shortage of chips and the supply chain kinks pushing up prices, true, but those are getting resolved fast. The gooseneck of demand, it just is a nuance on his correct answer. The gooseneck of demand that's coming by the way are battery minerals where prices are rising. So get used to higher priced EVs, I think. I, I, I take the bet. Uh, we're locked into rising price for EVs in the uh, in the coming years, not declining prices. But that, 
you know, that won't, if you're wealthy, it's not going to change much difference. Uh, change, change much. You'll still, it doesn't make a difference. You'll still buy them. All right. Last question His Baker's dozen, obviously a Baker's dozen is 13. His last question, he calls a bonus question. And he says, is the current network of charging stations adequate? And his answer, I quote, anyone considering buying an EV will first want to know where to charge it. For most, about 80% of buyers in the United States, the answer is at home, typically overnight or at a workplace garage. Anyone charging at home should use EV rated equipment, professionally installed, end quote. Okay, that's true. He's right. Um, We're on the same page. But again, I want to point out something that uh, with respect to the takeover the world thesis going forward, only a third of Americans have a personal garage. So in the future, what's going to matter is your ability to charge on the road like your fuel on the road today. So he goes on to say, is a sort of a longer answer to this question about charging networks. And and, and I think he put this bonus question in because it's about the big push by this administration and Congress to build, you know, lots of charging stations. So he goes on to write, um, I quote, for those without such access, he means, you know, garages, renters, city dwellers, students, going electric is not simply a question of where to charge, but for how long and at what cost. Anyone running those numbers and is likely to come up with a Tesla, which has 35,000 superchargers worldwide. But outside of Tesla's orbit, the state of fast charging is woefully inadequate. A mixed bag of 6,000 stations with varying standards and charging speeds. The big reset comes with the bipartisan infrastructure law of 2021, which provides $7.5 billion for EV charging infrastructure, most of it channeled through State Department of Transportation. These initiatives include funding for alternative fuel corridors, yada, yada. The goal is 500,000 charging stations nationwide by 2030, about a five-fold increase, end quote. So I give him zero, not not because the facts themselves aren't correct, but because he's because of this, the, the the statement, the big reset comes with bipartisan infrastructure law, the seven point five billion for expanding the EV charging infrastructure. That seven point five billion is a lot of money. It's not a big reset. That's why it gets zero points for this. It might be sufficient to put in place maybe two hundred thousand fast chargers. I take the bet that they don't get to that. But let's assume that they get, if you look at the actual price of fast chargers, that's what 7.5 billion buys you. But it doesn't include the cost of electric grid upgrades, uh, which somebody will pay for, ratepayers and taxpayers. It's paid for directly or indirectly. It's a subsidy that's just imposed uh, on the market like a mandate. And because a fast charger takes at least five times longer to fill up, you know, 30 to 40 minutes versus three to five, that means you, in, in a takeover the world thesis, if you want the same utility function, you're going to need five fast chargers for every single conventional gasoline pump to get the same number of consumers served over the same time periods. What that means is that we're going to have to replace the 1 million gasoline pumps in the country with on the order of 5 million fast chargers, not 200,000. So it's a big number. We're a long way away from that. The other thing he says, I quote, the other speed check on the road to electrification is the rate at which a vehicle can be safely recharged. Most EV systems use a 400 volt architecture, including Tesla. Others, including Hyundai and BMW, are transitioning to 800 volt battery systems, nominally two times quicker to recharge, plugged to the right charger. Some EVs in the market can gain 150 miles of range in 10 minutes, end quote. He's right. Bingo. Ultra-high voltage systems are, are essential for high-speed charging, uh, but they're extraordinarily expensive. 
They entail dramatic increases in total copper use to handle the power levels. These are all doable, but they're non-trivial in costs, and they're not in most cost models. Uh, if, it, if the amount of copper alone uh, is rarely counted in most co cost models, there's a very little copper in a gasoline pump. And now we're going to be building these very copper-intensive, millions of copper-intensive uh, electric pumps, if you like. And then he goes on to say, quote, as for the oft-quoted fear of used batteries gathering in landfills, that isn't happening. Out of necessity, automakers are building closed-looped whole vehicle recycling systems to recover valuable materials such as nickel, copper, cobalt, aluminum, end quote. I give him zero for this. Uh, the reason we don't have batteries gathering in landfills is because most EVs aren't 10 years old yet. Uh, it's just, just arithmetic. Uh, recycling, uh, these batteries are going to be difficult. They're all unique uh, across from automaker and model to model. Uh, they're physically hazardous to handle. The idea that there'll be a closed loop system, it's possible, but it doesn't exist today. The Volkswagen-led consortium was launched this year in 2022, not to build a quote, closed loop system, but to design one with the, and I quote their press release, with the aim to develop, end quote, such a system. The jury is out on whether one will be built at the scale needed and what it'll cost, but the fact is it doesn't exist now, and there will be millions and millions of batteries, which will be extremely difficult and expensive to recycle. It's just impossible to ignore. Then he, uh, in his last uh, observation, he says, and this is sort of key to the aspirations for the all EV future, and I quote, and he's again, he's talking about uh, the... Uh, the need for uh, for battery battery recycling and the worry the worries about uh, the minerals. Yeah, quote. Some are trying. Some battery makers are trying to make batteries from more common, less expensive materials. The biggest battery maker in the world, China's CATL, now makes lithium, manganese, iron, phosphate batteries with energy densities up to 255 watt hours per kilogram, comparable to nickel cobalt chemistries. That's the common one today, while being on the order of 20 percent cheaper. End quote. I gave him zero for this, not because it's not true. Uh, iron phosphate batteries exist. CATL is the leader in it. Chem chemists have developed a, a very wide range of lithium formulations to circumvent higher costs of specific minerals to get different safety or charge rate characteristics. But none of them result in a radical gain in performance. None of them result in a radical reduction in overall cost. Even the uh, vaunted iron phosphate class of lithium chemistry, for example, uh, while it doesn't require nickel or cobalt, it requires a lot more lithium and it still uses lots of copper and aluminum. And it requires in you know kilowatt hour terms more lithium. So when you look at across the whole range of battery chemical formulations, the one thing that doesn't change is that the electric vehicle, for example, requires 300% to 400% more copper and aluminum. The world is not planning to mine enough just copper and aluminum, no matter what kind of batteries are used. That's just the shortfall is coming. It's not far away. It's in the math. It's not, this is not a not amenable to quickly reversing because it takes not a few years to build mines. According to the IEA, the average globally is 16 years. Even if you accelerate the 10 years, we're talking about if we started building them tomorrow, having enough new mining capacity in place uh, more than a decade from now. So that's it. Uh, 30 claims. Uh, he got 14 right. If you if you if you're keeping score, uh, I, I'll give him. I'm going to I'm going to throw in a bonus credit to raise his score to 15. The bonus credit is in his latest column, uh, which which uh, which is published where he tests uh, another electric vehicle. In this case, uh, 
electric motorcycle, he he, he wrote, and, uh, and I'll quote accurately, the this is Dan Neal, the current limitations of battery technology, high cost, high mass, and low energy density relative to gasoline. Some vehicle types are easier to electrify than others, end quote. Bingo, big bonus credit because, you know, that he's absolutely right. And that means he, I can elevate his score to 15 right out of 30 claims. So he gets 50%. In some places that's a passing grade, but the some vehicles are easier to electrify than others. That statement he made is absolutely true. The sum will be a big number, by the way, and lots of money will be made on the backs of wealthy buyers and subsidies. But when it comes to the take over the world thesis, that sum, that number will still be a minor share of the global vehicle market for a very, very long time. So that's it for um, the my contribution to a retrospective on a big issue of 2022, which will probably be a big issue in 2023 again and 2024, but it was sort of a tipping point uh, year for the electric vehicle with the rush to electrify and ban conventional conventional engines. I'll, I'll end on an optimistic note, I mean, for consumers, because this would not be a good thing if we ban, if we, if we governments actually ban the class of uh, engine that 99% of people can afford to buy, well, let's say 90% of people can afford to buy. Uh, so my point of optimism is that the bans won't happen because they can't, because consumers consumers won't be able to afford it. We won't be building uh, enough cheap EVs, so they won't happen, which is which is arguably, arguably um, I guess you could call that uh, a form of good news <laughs> and a form of optimism. So on that note, uh, again, if you're enjoying these podcasts, please uh, rate them. Uh, and the platform that you listen on, I would appreciate that. All podcasters do. We all want positive ratings, but if you have criticisms, feel free to have at it. Uh, email me, put the questions in chat boxes. I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can find me. I'm not hiding. And on that note, uh, this is Mark Mills for The Last Optimist signing off. Mm -hmm.